This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW Sydney. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. Welcome everyone to the third panel of the Caldor Centre's 2022 conference entitled Is Ukraine a Turning Point for People Seeking Safety? My name is Jane McAdam and I'm the Director of the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law. I would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the lands on which we meet and pay my respects to Elders past and present, as well as to other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders who are joining us today. This panel is going to examine the Global North's response to people fleeing Ukraine. Does the welcoming attitude that we've seen in many countries, perhaps most notably throughout the European Union, as well as the quick and flexible arrangements for providing people with protection and visas, signal a renewed commitment to international protection? Or does it instead mark a turn towards more geographically proximate and time-bound responses? We're joined today by three experts who will reflect on these questions and offer their insights into what it all means for international protection more broadly. I'd like to briefly introduce each of our panelists. Arif Hussein is a senior solicitor at the Refugee Advice and Casework Service in Sydney and was previously a lawyer at the Human Rights Law Centre. Arif has spent over eight years working with refugees and people seeking asylum, both here in Australia as well as in Australia's regional processing centres on Manus Island, uh, sorry, centre on Manus Island in Papua New Guinea. He's the recipient of a 2020 Churchill Fellowship. Arif himself comes from Afghanistan and is deeply involved in action for Afghanistan. This is a movement of people who've come to Australia as refugees, as children of refugees and as migrants and all of them have found safety here in Australia and are seeking the same safety for the broader Afghan community. Yulia Yoffi is a lecturer in law at University College London. She holds a doctorate in law from Oxford University, an LLM from Harvard Law School, and a bachelor and master degree in law from Kiev National Taras Shevchenko University Institute of International Relations in Ukraine. Yulia uh, clerked for Judge James Crawford at the International Court of Justice, and she's worked for UNHCR in Bosnia and Herzegovina, as well as in, uh, for UNHCR in Belarus, Moldova and Ukraine. She's also worked for the Ukrainian Red Cross Society and a New York law firm, um, sorry, and a New York law firm. She currently still has family in Kyiv and she can speak directly to that experience. Catherine Woolard is the director of the European Council on Refugees and Exiles. She was previously the executive director of the European Peacebuilding uh, Liaison Office in Brussels, the director of policy and communications at Conciliation Resources and senior program coordinator at Transparency International. She's had assignments in Ethiopia, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Myanmar, Ivory Coast, and the Philippines. She has a BA in philosophy, politics, and economics from Oxford University, and was a PhD candidate at the European University Institute's Department of Social and Political Science. 
So welcome to our three expert speakers. What we're going to do now is have around 40 minutes of a moderated discussion, and then we'll have 15 minutes or so of question time from you, the audience. Audience members, though, are very welcome to post comments and questions throughout using the Q&A function. And uh, where possible, I will try and integrate some of these questions or comments into our discussion. So, Yulia, I'd like to begin with you in terms of setting the, the current context. In the media, we hear a lot about the numbers of people being displaced by conflict in Ukraine. But could you tell us a bit more about who is being displaced and how the impacts of the war are being felt by different groups? Thank you very much, Jane, for the kind uh, introduction. Um, I'll try to answer your question, but first, just also to clarify, I have been doing research and practice in refugee for for 15 years, but obviously I'm Ukrainian, so there is an obvious bias, but I'm hopeful that it also gives me an opportunity to compare the treatment of Ukrainians to other refugees that I worked uh, with through the years. So in terms of uh, the displaced population from Ukraine, it has a particular demographics. I think uh, uh, a lot of you might know that uh, Ukraine, Ukrainian men from ages of 18 to 60 are banned from leaving uh, the country. So uh, 90, around 90% 90 of uh, Ukrainian displaced population are women and children. And uh, th there is uh, a significant number of unaccompanied children that were separated from their families as a result of the war. And the other 10% are elderly people. Um, of course, the war had a significant impact on children. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, two thirds of Ukrainian children were displaced as a result of the war. Uh, so there, there is about 7.5 million children in Ukraine and 2 million became crossed the borders and uh, became displaced. Uh, the rest were displaced within the country. Um, I think in terms of speaking of impacts, the biggest impact of the war felt by these people is family separation. Uh, the armed conflict has already broken down many families and resulted in widespread uh, family separation. Uh, Ukrainian displaced people have left behind their husbands, fathers, brothers, sons, uncles, and grandfathers. Unfortunately, many elderly people also uh, either refused to go or had to stay because of the health reasons. And similarly, I think there should be more attention to Ukrainian people living with disabilities, many of whom unfortunately have been trapped by the war. So uh, the separation of families, as you know, uh, has devastating consequences for family members and their well-being and have particularly serious effects on children, on their physical and mental well-being. Um, the other aspect and the impact of the war I wanted to touch upon is uh, conflict-induced uh, gender sexual violence. Uh, unfortunately, we see uh, a widespread uh, gender and sexual violence committed by Russian troops. And uh, unfortunately, again, uh, a lot of it uh, goes unreported, but of course the victims uh, are both children and adults and need special support in terms of including in terms of uh, mental health and uh, access to reproductive health. Um, one of the things I've been working on recently is access to reproductive uh, health by uh, Ukrainian women. 
Uh, and unfortunately, there are problems with access to particular abortion in Poland that received the majority or a significant part of Ukrainian displaced population. And uh, of course, there are around 2 million people that were displaced to Russia from Ukraine. But unfortunately, we do not know a lot about this population. Uh, there are reports that many of them were uh, deported forcibly. Uh, there are also reports that there are thousands of children that were separated from their families, were forcibly deported to Russia, and now are adopted uh, by Russian citizens. And uh, it is very difficult to return them back. And uh, uh, finally, just wanted to highlight, I'm sure, uh, the members of the audience seen in the news that yesterday there was another big attack on civilian infrastructure. And already we have reports from, for example, from the, the capital, Kiev, and the authorities there that uh, we are preparing for evacuation. And uh, uh, if there, there is more damage to civilian infrastructure, I think there'll be another big wave of uh, Ukrainians crossing the border. Thank you very much for those insights, Yulia. And I'm sorry, it was remiss of me not to mention that your doctorate was in fact on in, in international refugee law with a special focus on, on children. And so I think your reflections um, there are, are, are so, you know, pertinent uh, and, you know, both from your, with your academic hat on, but also obviously seeing this happening in, in your country. Uh, and, you know, I know it it's something you've been deeply um involved with for a long time academically and never imagining that this is something that you'd be kind of living through more directly. Catherine, if I could turn to you, um, in March this year, the European Union voted unanimously to activate the temporary protection directive for Ukrainians. Prior to that, the directive had never been invoked. And in fact, some two years earlier, the European Commission had in fact proposed repealing it altogether. So I wondered if you could tell us a bit more about the, the Temporary Protection Directive, please. Um, what it is, why it's been used in this context and what sort of protection it affords people. Uh, yes, thank you very much. So from our perspective, this decision to activate the Temporary Protection Directive, the TPD, is an extremely positive one. It was designed and adopted as legislation for exactly this kind of situation. So the TPD creates a temporary protection regime for a specific category of people in a situation of mass influx. And this is the wording in the legislation. In this case, the implementing decision uh, provides the scope and immediate automatic protection is offered to almost everybody leaving from Ukraine. And in addition, the content of protection is quite wide. So there's a full range of socio and economic rights uh, for this group. And in addition, freedom of movement within the EU, um, which is something, uh, of course, that's very contentious, usually within the common European asylum system. So from our perspective, the advantages of this is that it provides security of status to a large group of people, but it also relieves the administrative pressure on the member states. And that's one of the main reasons for this mechanism. So that means that people are not stuck for a lengthy period of time in status determination. And in addition, the fact that, that the content of protection is strong, that the rights are provided and that it's immediate means that that principle of inclusion from day one can actually be put in place. 
Now, we should add that, as Yulia has already explained, um, there are immense practical challenges with the implementation of the TPD. And this is an ongoing humanitarian emergency across a large part of Europe. So um, we shouldn't disregard the situation which remains highly challenging. Um, as a final remark from my side, of course, the question comes up as to why this is the first time that this uh, mechanism has been activated, given that it exists in EU law since 2001. And ECRE and others argued that it should have been activated in 2015, because this was also a situation that met the conditions and would have benefited from the use of this mechanism. And in fact, what we had instead was the EU-Turkey deal, which has um, huge negative consequences for protection. And undoubtedly, it would be naive not to acknowledge that there are racial and religious biases in asylum and migration policy. So one of the reasons for the activation is also to do with uh, the origin of the people arriving. And there are other factors, the, the sheer scale of displacement and the rapid period in which it took place. Demography, demography is a factor, and this is to do with the perception of different categories of people seeking protection, and in particular the way that, for instance, young men who are not white are perceived as a threat, and all of those factors play in, in um, to the decision. But also I think there are security and military considerations. Um, it was clear because of the situation of conflict with Russia that Europe could not enter its usual period of panic and paralysis in response to this crisis and that displacement would have been used um, in the situation um, to the advantage of um, uh, Russia in that case. So there's a whole variety of factors, but of course we and others contrast the response with the response that we saw in relation to the crises of 2021, where um, the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan, of course, led to uh, a very different response on the part of Europe, which was based on uh, every possible effort to prevent people from arriving to seek protection in Europe. So it's been on the political level, uh, in some senses, the opposite response to usual. The question now is, can that be sustained? How do we transition into long-term support? And how to ensure that the rights within uh, the TPD are accessible by the people covered? And how can we learn lessons from this for the wider asylum system? Thank you, Catherine. I mean, this might be uh, asking you to you know, speculate, but I just wondered to, you know, to what extent do you think that having that procedure, that order, that process in place may have altered public perceptions too about how actually having a process makes things more manageable as opposed to this, you know, idea of do nothing or be overwhelmed or, you know, whatever else someone might think? I think this is the way in which the activation of the TPD can significantly change asylum policy in the positive sense within Europe. What we see is that when the, the decision is taken to manage, Europe and the European Union can manage. So we've heard over the last six to seven years and previously, but particularly in the recent period, that this is a situation that is impossible, the system cannot function. Where 
actually far smaller numbers of people arriving to seek protection and indeed the majority entitled to protection and let, let's be clear of those arriving in Europe beyond the Ukraine crisis and so this has shown that the tools are there and that with the right political decisions it is possible for Europe um, to manage in what is an um, is a far larger displacement crisis. So I think that's very important. One of the current battles in terms of advocacy, let's say, but also in terms of public perception and communications, um, is the attempt to prevent this becoming a two-tier system where there is a particular response to for, for some people arriving, um, but the system becomes still harsher and more restrictive for other people arriving to seek protection. And just to give you an example there, um, we're currently spending a lot of time working on proposals to reform uh, EU asylum law. And those reform proposals go in exactly the opposite direction of the response to Ukraine displacement. They're based on a model that is extremely restrictive, that focuses on containment of people at borders in detention effectively, de facto detention in some cases, um, and then being subject to substandard asylum procedures. And um, so it, uh, I, it's, it's the opposite of what we've seen in terms of this response. And so I think some of the benefits of this response where people have rapid access to a protection status, where freedom of movement, which allows for, for more um, likelihood of linking, reuniting with family, things considered taboo are actually put in place. And um, so I, I think that's one of the current challenges. And those reform proposals, as you so rightly said in your introduction, they actually propose repealing the TPD. This piece of legislation that is being used to host 5 million people. So everything has to be reconsidered. Um, and this event at least provokes that. And um, nonetheless, it, it, it's complex because there are forces that are insistent on saying, well, this is different for particular reasons. Thank you. That's that's really interesting. And um, I guess, you know, on that note, Arif, I'd like to turn to you and, and sort of consider Australia's response here. And you know, how has Australia responded to displacement from Ukraine? Perhaps if you wish, you know, bearing in mind how Australia has chosen not to respond to other uh, situations. Yeah. Thanks, Jane. Um, and thanks, Catherine, for your comments. Before I begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land I'm calling from, um, the Gadigal people of the Euro Nation, and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Um, and I would also um, specifically like to acknowledge the suffering and the pain that the Ukrainian people are experiencing at the moment um, and acknowledge the lived experience and expertise of my fellow panelists, Yulia. Um, so from my perspective and the perspective that I bring uh, to this conversation is as a practitioner in Australia. And I've been working in refugee law uh, since around 2013 in various capacities, including on Mas Manus Island and assisting people subject to Australia's offshore processing on Nauru too. Um, and from that perspective, um, Australia's response, our response to the crisis in Ukraine has been exemplary. 
Australia has responded to the displacement in Ukraine, uh, not only through military aid, but also by prioritizing visa applications from Ukrainian nationals across the migration program. Um, and since, you know, last I checked, approximately 10,000 visas were issued to Ukrainian nationals um, and around um, 4,000 of those, uh, 4,000 um, temporary humanitarian concern visas uh, were also issued to um, Ukrainian nationals fleeing uh, the invasion of their country. And the other distinction um, have been uh, for the Ukrainian crisis have been that there's been a relatively easy process by which people could access uh, the three-year temporary humanitarian concern visa that was available. And, um, and, uh, and through that process, people were given the right to work, the right to study and access to Medicare. So, so relatively speaking, based on my experience as a lawyer, who's represented people from Afghanistan, Syria, Iraq, Rohingyas from Myanmar, um, the, the response, our response to the crisis in Ukraine has been exemplary. And as a person who fled a war-torn country, I wholeheartedly empathize with the Ukrainian people and I welcome this speedy and urgent response from, um, from the Australian government. However, as a lawyer, for me, it is undeniable that the, uh, that the Australian government's response to people fleeing the war in Ukraine um, is in stark contrast to our long-standing deterrence-based approach to those fleeing war and humanitarian crisis in our region, um, such as people fleeing um, Myanmar, Rohingya people fleeing Myanmar, and people fleeing uh, conflicts that we've been a part of, such as the conflict in Afghanistan, the conflict in Iraq. Um, in Australia, our response to the plight of people seeking asylum in the past two decades and more have been defined by Fortress Australia and a dehumanizing discourse that has continued to problematize people seeking asylum. So this discourse um, has been driven, as um, Catherine alluded to, in large part by um, uh, ideas around people seeking asylum being illegals, queue jumpers, threats to our way of life. And this type of rhetoric and discourse um, has been supported by both political parties in Australia around refugees and people seeking asylum in the last two decades. Um, this type of discourse about refugees and people seeking asylum from certain part of the world has given social license for our government to treat people seeking asylum with utter disregard for their inherent humanity and their fundamental human rights. So despite uh, the Australian government's welcome response to Ukrainians fleeing unlawful invasion of their homeland. Today in Australia, uh, people spend on average over two years in immigration detention. We continue to fund an inhuman and cruel offshore processing regime. People subject to that regime have been living in limbo in Australia and in, in Nauru for over 10 years now, or close to 10 years now. Approximately 20,000 people who the Australian government has recognized as 
refugees and have said that they can't go back to their home countries. People from, um, for example, Rohingyas from Myanmar, Hazaras from Afghanistan, um, people from Iraq, around the world, they continue to be denied permanent safety in Australia. So as I mentioned, um, as a person who fled war, uh, I welcome the embrace shown by the Australian government towards those fleeing the war in Ukraine. However, despite um, a recent government change, in substance, the Australian government continues to practice and is committed in most part to a cruel deterrence-based approach to displacement in our region and, um, and, uh, and in conflicts that we have been involved in in the past, like Afghanistan and Iraq. Arif, just listening to those comments too, I wonder, you know, reflecting on what Catherine said, uh, the Australian public has seen how this can be managed. I mean, it, I don't think anybody has turned around and said, we're being overrun here, what's going on? I mean, it's, it's actually a much simpler process when you enable protection and afford protection in that way. Uh, and so further reflection on that, I think, would be helpful. Um, you know, more, more broadly in, in public discourse. I'm not, sorry, I'm not sure if you want to jump back in there. Yeah, I think that you raise a good point um, that, you know, the, there's no lack of ability for us to resettle people. Uh, you know, the 20,000 people who are on temporary protection visas already settled here. There's um, no need for doing uh, any onerous processing. The issue here is the will, and as Catherine mentioned, when there is political will, uh, there, there seems to be a way, but uh, is, that is lacking. And the reason why that is lacking is, for me, a cultural question in Australia and a societal question. And it comes to the discourse and the truths that we talk about uh, in terms of framing the refugee com conversation in Australia when it comes to people who um, arrive here seeking protection um, by irregular means. Thank you, Arif. Yulia, we'll, we'll come back to you now. And, you know, one of the most striking features, I think, of responses to displacement, both within and from Ukraine, has been the scale of what we might call people power. So seeing individuals and communities rallying to support and even house people fleeing conflict. Is this, you know, in your experience, is this unique? And does it perhaps reflect a broader trajectory in refugee protection, moving away from government-based protection to, you know, protection by non-state actors? And, and I, as I was kind of thinking through this question, I was reminded that, in fact, if we go right back to the beginnings of, of the international protection regime, it was NGOs and, you know, well, charities, as they were then called, and communities and church groups supporting refugees. Um, and then I think it sort of flipped more to, you know, government-based protection. But, you know, to what extent are we moving back to that non-state actor support? Um, thank you, Jane. Uh, indeed, uh, Ukrainian uh, refugees or displaced persons receive uh, incredible support. And uh, obviously, we are very grateful. I think one of the reasons, and uh, this I think we will see more in the future, is the fact that Ukrainians were able to use social media quite effectively and uh, reach directly communities in other countries. Uh, of course, uh, this happened before, but I think, again, uh, there was a, a combination of factors uh, that allowed Ukrainians to talk to people around the world more effectively. I think many Ukrainian people 
speak English. Uh, English is a compulsory subject in secondary school. So, and 90% of Ukrainians finish secondary education. So uh, because of this, I think uh, Ukrainians were able to surpass uh, journalists and uh, states uh, um, uh, communication and to speak directly to people. And I think it's one thing when you hear about thousands of refugees in Syria, but I think it's very different if you hear a personal story from a person you know or seemingly know. Uh, but I think generally, unfortunately, I'm quite pessimistic in terms of um, pro progression, the broader trajectory of people's power. I think in this particular case with Ukraine, there is a combination of uh, specific factors that contributed to such widespread support. Uh, I think we already talked about the particular demographics. And unfortunately, that's the reality that people are sympathetic more to women and children, especially when the pictures of crying women carrying children are portrayed. Uh, I'm in no way saying that single male and uh, refugees who are single male are deserving less of protection, but I think in the eyes of a regular person, of a lay person, I think women and children are sympathetic and because of this particular demographic and because there were almost no men, refugee men, uh, fleeing from Ukraine, I think it uh, uh, caused or evoked more sympathy. And I think that's what we as refugee lawyers also need to look into, into how we use and rely on vulnerability, how it's used in uh, the court decisions and also in international organizations, because unfortunately, I think the reality is that we do have a hierarchy of vulnerability and women and children are on the top and men are on the bottom. And uh, unfortunately, it also creates this uneven response to um, refugee flows from different countries. Um, another um, uh, factor, I think, is that uh, the protection is temporary. I think people in the community, in the receiving communities, and I've been working here in the UK with the scheme Homes for Ukrainians, I think it's really clear that the hosts and the British people understand that this is temporary. Um, Ukraine before Russian invasion was, well, a functioning, well, new democracy. Of course, there were problems, there was corruption, etc. But uh, people were not were living there and were not fleeing it. So I think the understanding of most people who are very welcoming is that they are welcoming, but they're welcoming for a certain amount of time, a limited amount of time, and that uh, the understanding is that the Ukrainians will go home. And of course, I think Ukrainians do intend majority to go home. I think I've seen recent polls around 70% of Ukrainians uh, would like to return back. And this is the reason also that Poland is now really overwhelmed because people don't want to move further into the EU because they're hopeful that they can go home uh, as soon as possible. And I think another factor is that uh, there has been there have been negative feelings, to, be, to put it mildly, towards Russia, towards Soviet Union, and towards Russian Empire by Eastern European states and Central European states. Many of them experience human rights violations, uh, crimes against humanity, possibly genocide. So they do know what it is uh, to live near Russia and to be colonized by Russia. And I think it just uh, the feeling of solidarity by people who, who had the same experience. And uh, um, I think another big factor that uh, we, at least in Europe, is that uh, there are large Ukrainian diasporas uh, in uh, all over Europe and in Ukraine. So if we look, for example, 
in even Czech Republic, uh, there are before the war there were 130,000 Ukrainians living in the country, which is uh, only 10 million people of population. So obviously, uh, Ukrainian diaspora was uh, very helpful and uh, uh, also pushed this agenda and obviously uh, pressured policymakers to provide more help uh, to Ukrainians. And finally, and obviously this is a extra legal factor, uh, th there is, there has been this story of, uh, or at least how Ukrainian crisis was presented in the media, is the story of David Angolias, uh, a, a much bigger country attacks another country uh, that was peaceful and uh, wasn't aggressive. And, and unfortunately, again, for a lay person, uh, I think it's really difficult to uh, understand, especially if there is a civil war in the country, who's right, who's wrong. In this situation, at least seemingly, it was pretty clear who is the bad guy in the situation. So the, sympathy, the sympathies by Ukrainian people were received uh, quite clearly and uh, uh, very fast. And of course, we were lucky to have President Zelensky, who is an excellent speaker. He's a professional actor. So he was able to, again, speak to the people and have excellent speeches. So I think all of these factors help us to garner the support that, that we did, especially, especially in Europe and in the UK. But I think if one of these factors was missing, I'm not sure that the support would be the same. Thank you, Yuli. I mean, that's a really lucid account and an analysis as to, you know, why everything is lined up here in a particular way. Um, there, there are comments coming through the chat, you know, pointing out parallels with Afghanistan and saying, well, why not there? And I think, you know, in August last year, and Arif, you may wish to comment on this, we did see, um, you know, huge advocacy and, and, and broad public support, and yet governments were just really slow to respond. Do you want to jump in on this? Yeah, I think there's, um, you know, the factors that, um, that brought sympathy for the elements that brought sympathy for refugees or people displaced by the invasion of uh, Russia into Ukraine. Um, they were kind of broadly similar because, you know, you, we had, firstly, we had a large number of um, women who in the last 20 years, because of promises by Western countries like Australia, um, in terms of protection of human rights, they they, they, they took charge and they um, educated themselves and they participated in civil society. So there was the Taliban's takeover of Afghanistan provided a direct threat to them. And there's that vulnerability around the woman uh, and the vulnerability of women and children in that, element, in that story too. And then there's the issue around um, uh, sympathy for those uh, fleeing a, a terrorist organization like the Taliban that has been, um, you know, uh, in, in the Western media, it, you know, it's very relatable who the Taliban are and why people are fleeing. And, um, but, and there was a wide range of public support. So, you know, I was a part of an advocacy campaign that garnered around 10,000 signatures within 24 hours for the Australian government to take action. Uh, in response to the Taliban takeover. There was 186,000 people within a few weeks who signed a petition for the Australian government to take action. So there was a lot of um, factors that, that existed. There was, there was around 80,000 um, Afghan diaspora in Australia who were ready to help with the 
settlement um, in, Australia, in, in Australia of the refugees who would come here. Uh, and people, communities offer jobs, accommodation, food, and they do that. But all those factors um, wasn't enough and continues not to be enough for the Australian government to act um, in the same manner and urgency that we've acted in response to, um, to displacement in Ukraine. And we have to ask ourselves why that is. And uh, for me, in my experience, working in this area where we've seen, for example, women subject to offshore processing on Nauru and their vulnerabilities being uncovered through um, Nauru uh, files, for example, um, and we have to ask ourselves why those vulnerabilities don't matter. Why do we have selective compassion and why do we practice selective compassion when it comes to refugees and displaced people? That is a fundamental question. And I think in a rising, uh, in a world where there's rising autocracy and there is um, a rising displacement by um, climate change, um, natural disasters, we really have to think about this question about our selective compassion and whether it's in our interest. Thank you, Arif. Catherine, we'll come back to you now. Sorry, Jane. If, if, yes, sorry, Yulia. Sorry, Jane, if I might just uh, insert uh, a disclaimer. Obviously, when I was talking about Ukraine and Ukrainian refugees, and as I mentioned, I did work with Afghan refugees and Syrian refugees before. I'm in no way saying that situation in Ukraine is unique. I, I think that, but we do need to pay attention to factual scenarios and factual circumstances and particular for the, and I am speaking to my knowledge of European context, uh, but I think among the, all the factors, and I obviously agree that the vulnerability and the demographic is similar in other refugee population, but I, I think what's the, the, the distinguishing factor is that at least in the minds of Europeans, it is a temporary situation and that Ukrainians will go home. There is no path for citizenship. I don't think Europeans are ready to integrate uh, Ukrainians permanently as part of the society. And if you see already now some of the polls, I think I've seen the polls in Austria, the support for Ukrainians is waning the more they are staying in uh, the neighboring countries and the European countries. So at least uh, in my experience and my opinion, the fact that it's temporary and that there, there won't be needed any efforts for further integration, uh, path to citizenship, I think that makes it, at least for people, uh, I'm not talking about the government, but for people, uh, this situation more acceptable. Thank you. And actually, as you were talking, a, a comment came through on the Q&A where somebody was kind of effectively saying that, you know, is the welcome really conditional on the, on the assumption that it is temporary? And may that welcoming attitude wear off if it is considered to actually be something more permanent? Um, I, I mean, I'm just reflecting back many years ago when Australia um, welcomed a much smaller number of uh, refugees from Kosovo and it was meant to be temporary and and some communities wanted it to be permanent and there was you know this huge huge difficulties then in communities wanting people to stay and the government saying but no the whole thing was meant to be temporary and uh, so you can you know it can work out the other way too that in fact people do become part of a community integrate kids are at school, people are working together and, and friends, how then do you facilitate that that kind of permanent stay? Um, and I don't mean only when the community wants people, obviously, it's not safe for, for people to return. Uh, if it's not safe for people to return, then of course, they shouldn't be, be forced to do so. Catherine, I'll, I'd 
come to you um, in a sense, you know, partly on that point, but also a broader question about what you think the longer term implications might be for refugee protection in Europe, both for Ukrainians and future groups of, uh, of refugees. Um, and, and whether you think that now that the temporary protection directive has been triggered once, whether it, there's a greater likelihood that it would be used again. Yes, it, it, to say immediately, I think it's highly significant that the TPD was activated and the fact that it has been used does make it much more likely that it will be used again. And the fact that not only has it been used, but it's proved it, its value. And so at least reform proposals that suggest that it be repealed, these, these are being rethought. And it, nonetheless, and, and in my view, rather absurdly, it still hasn't been decided that that instrument will be retained. So these things are still under discussion. And I, I, I would say this question of ensuring the rights of displaced people arriving in Europe, the, uh, the, the, the struggles to have a, a humane and rights-based asylum system, a, a functioning asylum system. Many of these questions are, in a sense, perpetual struggles. They don't go away. And so the response to Ukraine displacement has certainly sh shaken up the debate has uh, certainly changed things fundamentally and um, in the sense that before this we were in a situation where every single proposal was to reduce standards um, was for a more restrictive approach and certain elements of the debate uh, such as the fact that that Europe couldn't manage with the numbers of arrivals and so on and um, some of that is now thrown into question which opens up um, uh, the, the chance to change. So it's not uh, the, the kind of situation that we were in two or three years ago, where advocacy work and also litigation work was highly defensive. It was about maintaining um, the territory that we had and trying to preserve protection standards such as they were and trying to argue for compliance with international obligations by the EU member states. So it it it, it has changed and it has, while I, I hesitate to use the word in, in a situation which is an ongoing humanitarian crisis with significant suffering, it does create opportunities at the level of advocacy and influencing. And so we're trying to take advantage of that. The situation is extremely unpredictable and the not just the public support, but also the political support for a more protection focused response in this case is something that that remains very precarious and can be subject to rapid change. And other issues are also fragile. So for instance, the unity among the EU member states is something that is um, at risk. And particularly, for instance, after the results of the election in Hungary. And so the, the factors that that led to a more open response um, are things that that may not persist. I think we should also note that there was um, immense public support and 
and direct practical action in support of refugees on other occasions. So, for instance, in response to displacement from Syria, um, there the, the, the have been millions of people across Europe working to support refugees. And actually, it's daily work for a lot of people. And um, so sometimes public support is not then mirrored by political action. And, and I, I, I gathered that also from what um, Arif was saying about the situation in Australia. So um, all of these factors are uh, at play. Um, I would say what will de determine the outcome of this um, are certain factors beyond our control. So, for instance, the um, the progress and um, the part, the trajectory of the conflict in Ukraine itself, and the decisions that Russia makes. For instance, whether it will attempt to manipulate and exploit displaced people in order to provoke crisis in Europe, and um, and this is something that we saw happening last year as well with the situation of of people. Uh, arriving in Belarus and uh, attempting to seek protection in Europe um, from crossing from Belarus. And the situation of civil society is also one that is sometimes um, rather fragile. So this response depends a lot on civil society being able to continue to operate and to continue to support. So we're looking at something which is a, a sort of whole of society response. And in recent years in Europe, what we see is that civil society steps in when states are not fulfilling their obligations. Um, and this has happened in, in 2015 and afterwards. And that has created a situation where in some countries, the relationship between governments and civil society is tense and conflictual. And states are deliberately not fulfilling their obligations under international and EU law when it comes to uh, the rights of displaced people, civil society is stepping in and then faces restriction, repression, and in some cases, even criminalization. And so because states need civil society in response to the Ukraine displacement, that relationship is also changing. So our members in certain countries, I mean, Hungary would be one example, but Poland is also another example, um, have been in a very tense and difficult relationship with governments. So how this plays out is also a, a factor. So um, it, it's something that I, I think all efforts are, are from those working in advocacy and legal support um, to people seeking protection are about trying to ensure that the response to Ukraine displacement continues to be something um, that is managed, but then trying to draw that out and apply it in the reform process for the asylum system more widely, but also to the functioning of the asylum system more widely, so that all um, can um, benefit from a, a different approach. Thank you for such a comprehensive and thoughtful response, Catherine. Um, bef before we come back to you know, the Australian response, I'll, I just want to stay with, um, with Europe for a moment. And actually, uh, Julia, perhaps I could put this question to you that's come through on the chat, but I want to combine it with, you know, just clarification um, point as well. So the question was that LGBTIQ plus Ukrainian refugees are essentially facing double the persecution, conflict in their home country, um, but then homophobia in places like Poland and Hungary. 
And so, you know, you, you were talking at the outset about who's being displaced, different groups. So I wondered if you might speak to that. But related to that, we've got this temporary protection directive, which, as its name suggests, offers temporary protection. But, of course, people can then go on to apply on an individual basis for refugee status. So I just wanted, wondered if maybe in your answer you could explain a little bit about you know, about that as well. Um, thank you, Jane. Um, so uh, definitely LGBTQ plus individuals uh, is one of the groups that are uh, have this double vulnerability and are affected more. And uh, I think uh, there hasn't been enough attention or research uh, to this group, as well as the group that I've already mentioned. It's uh, disabled people, especially disabled men. They were, in some instances, were unable to cross the border because of their... Uh, effectively gender uh, so uh, it definitely that's uh, remains uh, a protection issue uh, but uh, I can speak of the changes that are uh, ongoing in Ukraine itself I think there is a really broad uh, dialogue now in Ukraine in terms of uh, protection of all of uh, LGBT people uh, there is there there was a broad campaign to change legislation so that LGBT uh, people can um, marry and uh, be in civil partnerships in Ukraine uh, for now uh, it is uh, this legislation is on hold because it requires change in the constitution and constitution cannot be changed during the martial laws but uh, there has been an overwhelming support and uh, fighting against discrimination of LGBT uh, people. And uh, I think it's also known that there, there's parts of even army where there are battalions of LGBT people fighting uh, on the side of Ukraine. So within the internal displacement, at least, I think uh, th there is a, a huge uh, move towards better treatment that comes from the people of Ukraine. And hopefully that would push uh, government as well to uh, make sure that uh, these people are not discriminated. Um, unfortunately, I cannot speak about exactly in Poland, but I think that's the issue we need uh, to work on. And uh, the second issue was about application for refugee status. Uh, unfortunately, again, with, with regard to people that I've been working with, I haven't seen anyone applying for refugee status. I think the majority of people are applying for temporary protection because it's easier and the procedure is easier. Um, I think perhaps this was already discussed, but uh, there are obvious uh, problems with Ukrainians applying for refugee status because they are not be they're not being persecuted by Ukrainian government. So they're fleeing the war. So technically, it is unlikely that uh, the majority of Ukrainians would uh, fit the refugee definition under the 1951 convention. Uh, but so I think the majority of Ukrainian or the cases that I've seen are opting for temporary protection. And I think the other thing that is happening that a lot of Ukrainians are applying for these documents in the UK and in Europe for temporary protection, but they receive the documents, but they return to Ukraine. So we'll, we've seen that more than a million people return back. And I can speak of Kia, for example, many people returned even with having the documents just in case, but uh, there, there have been a lot of returns and people are not very motivated to apply for uh, asylum, for refugee status. That would mean uh, moving from Ukraine and naturalization in another country. Thank you. And it may, I mean, it also may be that at this point in time, people are hoping temporary protection will be enough. And I should clarify that it's quite a different concept in Europe from TPVs that the Australian audience might be familiar with. 
Um, incidentally, Hugo Story, a former immigration judge in the UK, wrote a very interesting piece recently about how the refugee definition could well apply to um, to people fleeing Ukraine. So that I mean, that's um, worth having a look at if people are interested. Um, I wanted to come back to you now, Arif, to talk about what you think Australia's response to Ukraine might mean for others seeking safety today and in the future, and whether it might present opportunities for people displaced from Syria, Afghanistan or other contexts. And perhaps before you respond to that, um, you know, you mentioned before that you think there's selective compassion and we've had comments in the chat about um, you know, to what extent is race a factor? Some people saying the refugee crisis is essentially a racism crisis. Um, and, and a question too about, you know, how readily the Australian government issued visitor visas to Ukrainians when it's been blocking visitor visas for, for people from, you know, from other countries on the basis that they're not legitimate tourists to Australia. Yeah, so I think um, what I'll do, I've just been reflecting on the last uh, kind of discussion. And I want to just say that when I'm discussing issues and disparities between the treatment of different groups of refugees, I don't mean to say something like a race to the bottom that, you know, uh, refugees from certain part of the, uh, of the globe is treated badly. So all refugees should be treated badly. My critique of the Australian government's policy is that uh, refugees should be treated with compassion, dignity, and respect, no matter where they're from. They should be treated with consistency uh, and a consistent approach and, uh, and a respect for their humanity. That's where I'm coming from. Um, just to clarify our previous discussions. Um, so I think, so from me, in terms of implications, I would term them as learning from, from uh, Australia's government's uh, approach to Ukraine. The, the, and the, the learnings that I've had and the takeaways that I've had are informed by um, uh, my practice and the, and the work that I've done you know, so far in the refugee space in Australia. So um, I've worked with people uh, who are subject to offshore processing in Nauru, so children who are after six years of being detained on a remote island, becoming catatonic, who have um, have been pushed to the limits where they have started self-harming and have attempted uh, to, to take their own lives, essentially. So that's the, 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 the experience that we are working with. And, and in ADRAX, so the Refugee Advice and Casework Service, you know, Every day we're receiving calls from refugees who have been in Australia for nearly 10 years, who have uh, made lives here, pay taxes, our neighbours, friends and colleagues, asking us when will they get permanent protection. And despite commitments during the election and reaffirming of that commitment, we haven't heard anything from um, the new government. So in that context, the first learning that I've had from Australia's response to the crisis in Ukraine is that where there is a will for a government to take action, um, there is a way. So that's the first one, and I mentioned that before. The second learning that um, I've had or I've, I've picked up from our response to the plight of people from Ukraine is the continued prevalence of nativist and xenophobic factors 
that sometimes underpin our approach to suffering of people around the world. This is clearly evident um, in the language used in the media and language used in political discourse to describe those impacted by the Russian invasion of Ukraine and those fleeing other conflicts around the world. Um, as an example, uh, weeks following the takeover of Afghanistan by the Taliban, the Australian government, including the, at that time the, the, the Defence Minister Peter Dutton, alluded to proper security checks as a factor in delays experienced in getting at-risk people out of Afghanistan, including locally engaged employees who risk their lives to fight alongside Australian soldiers in Afghanistan. So in contrast, following the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, the Prime Minister Scott Morrison said people from Ukraine will go to the head of the queue, despite the rhetoric around queue jumpers that have dominated our political discourse in Australia in the last uh, two decades. So clearly for me, um, there is a factor of uh, nativism and xenophobia and racism that inform uh, our approach. Uh, and this is my personal opinion that informs the Australian government's approach uh, to people seeking asylum. And, you know, and despite having a new government, we continue to have um, commitments to Operation Sovereign Borders, which includes turn back the boat. So anybody fleeing any kind of conflict within our region, people from Myanmar, for example, will be turned back without any three-year uh, temporary protection visa or temporary uh, or temporary protection in Australia. Just turn back uh, with possible enhanced screenings. Um, and we have um, people suffering on temporary protection visas, and we continue to fund contracts to keep up offshore processing in Australia, and we export that to the world. So this is um, something that informs my view that um, the factors uh, that, uh, that define our response to conflicts such as Afghanistan is has some issues around racism xenophobia and nativism